This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Tamar Pickey is a whistleblower from Washington State whose story was published by the Free Press last week. She has a master's in social work from the University of Washington and has worked with older adults, pregnant and postpartum women, the chronically mentally ill, those in inpatient centers, and she spent the last six years doing outpatient community mental health. She told us that she's never sought out to be a whistleblower, but she believes wholeheartedly in having a voice when something is wrong, even when it seems like you're standing alone. She will always advocate in the best interest of her clients, not because they're her clients, but because they're people and people are worth fighting for. And here's our conversation with Tamara. Welcome back to Transparency, everyone. I'm Aaron Kimberly. We're here with my co-host, as always, Aaron Terrell. And today we have Tamara Pitsky here with us, who recently told her story uh, through the Free Press article about what happened uh, Tamara, with with your career and the clinic that we were working in, so I'd like to just start from the beginning and walk through that story of what you were seeing, like what happened in your practice, what you were seeing clinically, and why you became concerned. Yeah, sure. So I'd been with MultiCare for six years. Um, I'd worked with gender dysphoric youth in the past, but it was never there wasn't like a specific protocol that we we're supposed to follow. We basically just did therapy with them, like with anybody else. Um, last March, I had a client come in a 16 year old, um, and say that they identified it as a wounded male dog. Um, and that was when I was like, huh, like, I want people to feel safe talking to me about who they are and how they feel like they identify. But is there at any point that we start to think like, okay, this person has been so traumatized by their life that they can't even identify as human anymore. Like that seems like a mental health concern. And so I asked my colleagues about that. Um, And they basically said no, that if it's not causing an issue for them, it's the client's not reporting that their identity as a wounded male dog is a problem for them, then it's not a problem for us. That it's not something that we need to work on them, work with on, work, (laughs) work with them on. Um, And so we, I kind of just like, that didn't sit well with me, but we kind of just moved past that. And then early September, we were told there was going to be a mandatory gender affirming care training. And I just felt like that was just, I just, I didn't have a lot of information about gender affirming care or just like what exactly that meant. But I had a sense that that was not going to be, that the meeting was not, was going to be troublesome for me morally, that I wasn't going to be able to say, yeah, I agree with what, what standards are being set in place. So I spent the the few days leading up to the meeting, like doing tons of research online, trying to figure out what are the pros for gender affirming care? What are the cons for gender affirming care? And where do I sit with this? And am I understanding correctly what gender affirming care is? Um, and then I went to the meeting and I asked some questions and I said, you know, um, why are we running full steam ahead with this? If countries in Europe are pulling back, I just asked some basic questions and I tried to ask it in a way that wouldn't make anyone feel challenged or defensive. Um, but I was met with a lot of hostility. The speaker um, was very dismissive. The chat box with my colleagues blew up saying like, 
Um, you're doing harm to clients. Why would you bring politics into this? Um, I couldn't even work that day because I was so like taken aback by how cruelly people talk to me. So after the meeting, I just like, I was so distraught. Um, and following the meeting, I kept asking questions. So my boss initially was like, you know, that was not the correct forum to ask those questions, which again, didn't sit well with me because what would be the correct forum? Like if I have the opportunity to talk to 122 of my colleagues and be like, hey, there might be another side of this story here. Like there might be information that you're not being told. Then I absolutely want to alert people to that, you know, um, versus having behind the scenes conversations where I just continue to be silenced. Um, but I went that route. And so I ended up emailing the speaker of the presentation. I asked my boss some questions and again, um, was basically told, you know, you don't know what you're talking about and you need to examine your biases. Um, and then a couple months later, I had a client, a 13 year old, um, her father, um, his father, I'm sorry, I don't know the right way to phrase how to say it, but asked to start for the client to start a letter to, to begin testosterone. And, um, I was like, I can't do that. Like they had, um, an extensive trauma history. They had, um, a diagnosis of autism. So in our interactions, I had only met with them three times, but like they would just scroll through their phone and show me like really graphic images and videos, um, like anime style videos. And they would just like rock back and forth. And I was really unable to like even engage with them or get to get a lot of like in-depth conversation out of them. Um, and I was like, this does not seem like a candidate for testosterone, you know? And so I asked again, my the speaker of the presentation and my boss, and I said, you know, I don't feel comfortable writing a letter for this child. And they were told me that there's no reason why a person's trauma history or mental health diagnoses or autism diagnosis would disqualify them to spur testosterone or any other hormone therapy. So um, after that, I was reported to risk management. And initially I thought, okay, finally risk management. And I can talk this through. We can look at the client's chart. We can figure out, okay, so yeah, here's the concerns. Here's how, here's why um, WPATH socket backs me up in this um, saying that we should just, you know, hold off for a little bit. Uh, but instead it was determined that I was the risk to the client and they took them from me. So, yeah. And I, I knew at that point, I can't keep working for a company that doesn't listen to my concerns um, at one, one point, I sent my boss an article uh, shortly after the meeting, and I said it just was like a short article that really summarized why I felt the need to speak up at the meeting. Um, and she said she didn't have time to read it. And that <clears throat> it makes me want to cry because I feel like if there's any chance that I'm right here, if there's any chance that we're hurting children, make the time to look at the article. Like there's not an excuse not to. It just breaks my heart that people are so quick to go along with whatever they're hearing and not look, do any of their own research. Did you, did what you else did you sense? determine about that patient about like, or that client? Um, I mean, have there been a longstanding history of gender nonconformity and gender dysphoria or had that kind mm -hmm. of emerged more recently? Yeah, with... Um, both of the clients I've mentioned so far, the 13-year-old and the 16-year-old, it was something, the 16-year-old 16 16-year-old 16 said that it was something that they started reading about online during COVID and that they were like, oh, that sounds like me. Um, and then the 13-year-old 
their um it was I think around when they were like 11 that they started saying that they weren't um their the gender that they were assigned at birth and so um when I asked them about that though like when I said you know I see that you have an upcoming gender clinic appointment here they didn't even know about it they're like like they never told me that they felt like they were the opposite gender so yeah it's kind of confusing as to how that um was determined it sounds like that younger one had a, a, an incredibly traumatic background very, of severe abuse traumatic. and neglect yes yeah they um mom uh tried to kill their older sister while they watched like just a lot of sexual trauma it was an incredibly traumatic upbringing they said that the only movies in their house when they were growing up were porn and horror so that's what they were exposed to as a young child um it was yeah a very very sad story and as i understand the the, the child is being raised um by by like the father is not the biological father no. correct and, and, and but that wasn't it wasn't the the um the abusive one so that's good but i'm right, wondering yeah. if if the if the the push for testosterone is maybe um like a, a protective i i run into this a lot of like you know um uh young people with a history of abuse seeking you know, young females with a history of you seeking testosterone treatment because it, it's a protective measure measure from further assault. And I could understand a, uh, a a protective father perhaps wanting to do this, like thinking of the same. I'm just trying to put, justify what he was thinking, why he thought testosterone was a good call in this very, very um, troubled uh, child. But yeah, beside the point, I'll let you tell the story. Yeah, no. So um, two of the people that I mentioned in the article said that they um, also had gender dysphoric siblings. So then that makes me wonder, like, what is going on there in the family system? Because my understanding is that the likelihood of two siblings both having gender dysphoria is pretty, pretty rare, you know. So I don't know if it was protective. I don't know. I don't know, you know. Sounds like you weren't really given the opportunity to explore any of that. Absolutely not. No, that Multicare made it very clear that we are not allowed to ask any of those kind of questions. Um, I would never, ever try to talk somebody out of their identity. I just wanted to be able to work. I want kids to get to be to get. get, get. <laughs> I want kids to get to be kids. I want them to figure out who they are, and I, I see it as an honor to get to walk through that process with them. I would never say no. You're not that thing, you know. But let's not make lifelong, body altering, decisions that their brains aren't even fully fully de uh, developed enough to understand the gravity of, you know, especially if there's like a social element, if they're autistic and they feel like they don't feel comfortable in their body, if they're a teenager and they feel like they're not comfortable in their body. Well, those seem like other reasons to like, okay, well, what else is going on here? Because I think it's very common for autistic people or even teenagers to be like, I don't know why I don't feel like, I don't feel like I fit in. And so then they start looking for answers to that. And maybe, maybe they settle on something that feels true to them that they will, will decide differently about down the road, you know? Did you have a chance to talk to any of the parents? Um, with a 16 year old, the mom was in every session. So yes. Um, not with anybody else. Um, the 13 year old, I talked with dad briefly because I was 
calling to make another appointment for them. And that's when the letter of testosterone came up or the letter to support testosterone. So it sounds like parents in both cases were on board with starting testosterone. Yeah. With the 16 year old, they only reason that they didn't start testosterone was because dad wouldn't allow it. But it sounds yeah, like they but... went from, from identifying as a boy, like the, the original, um, they, they originally decided that they were, um, what a trans boy and they were, were seeking transition, but then, um, there was like roadblocks in the way because of, because of the, the father not being on board with a transition. And then later on down the road, they came to the, the, the 16 year old came to the conclusion that she was actually a, a wounded dog and not a, a wounded male dog and not a trans boy. Um, that was just like a two session blip, like, and then that never came up again. So I'm not sure. Yeah. But there was, they did say that they felt like they were, um, male and then the wounded male dog piece. And, um, then they went back to being, you know, identifying as male. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's always hard to tell, like, from the surface of things, whether someone kind of means that metaphorically or literally, and it sounds like you weren't really given an opportunity to explore what that meant to the client and, and, you know, what it meant for them and how that developed. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that they meant it literally because they were saying that they felt like they didn't have all the appendages that they should have and they wanted to start wearing ears and a tail and stuff. Um, but I felt like I had to tread very lightly. You know, I didn't want to ask anything that was going to make them feel like, um, you know, I just didn't know. I didn't want to be offensive or suggest that their feelings weren't valid. But I also felt like I'm not doing my job as a therapist if we don't explore this, you know. I'm thinking about what you're saying in the context of like Canadian therapy, uh, conversion therapy law. We have federal um, federal law as well as regional and provincial laws. But our federal law is worded in such a way it says that it would be a criminal offense to try to shift anyone's gender identity into a cisgender identity. So it's very, very vague. And I mean... This has never, of course, been tested in court, but if your client had a gender identity as a wounded male dog, it would be considered conversion therapy to try to to try to change that. Yeah, and, my right? understanding is, yeah, that's my understanding is that I could have gotten in trouble if I tried to like be like to work through that with them at all, you know? And of course, therapy, as you know, I mean, is never about coercing or forcing change on no, a person. No, absolutely but, not. But you hope like if someone obviously has a maladaptive self-conception that, I mean, the hope of therapy is change, right? I mean, that's why people come to therapy is I am depressed, I'm anxious, I'm whatever, right? I have an eating disorder and they, they're looking for change and through self-exploration, they, you know, we lead them through a process of self-exploration so that they can start to activate some change in their lives. So in the case of someone who has a, and I, and this is why these, these very poorly worded conversion therapy laws are so frightening because I don't think they were really thinking, well, a person could have a gender identity as a cat or a dog or a chair, right? And, and these are maladaptive identities, especially if they're wanting any surgical medical interventions to, to yeah. align their bodies with these identities. So it's frightening that we can't 
ever really explore more deeply what these identities mean for a person. Absolutely. It is very scary to me. You know, I, I want my clients to live very fulfilled lives where they feel good about themselves. And I don't have an end goal as to what that looks like for each individual person. I just want to be able to like help guide them in that process of figuring out, okay, what does that look like for you? And if something is the result of trauma, like I don't want to feel like we have to tiptoe around that and not address it. Like there's all this, all these like horrible things that happened to that 13 year old. And there's no way for me to work through that with them without it potentially coming off as me trying to talk them out of their gender. Like that doesn't, it's just so, I don't understand how mm-hmm. an employer can mandate that their clinicians stop doing therapy basically. And just sign off on anything that comes across their desk as like, um, you know, hormone replacement therapy or something else. Especially when it, I mean, it's, it's, it would be one thing for the client to identify as a dog. I mean, we, that happens. Like we were hearing that from kids quite a bit, but the fact that they're saying it's a wounded yeah. male dog, right? I mean, they're, they're expressing distress. They're just dis- expressing pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I want to know why you feel so traumatized by, by life that you don't, you can't even be human anymore, that you feel like a wounded male dog. Like that's not where I want you to live the rest of your life. in that mindset like that you deserve better than that. What was so. the um, process of, 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 of working with these clients prior to that training? Cause you said that you had uh, plenty of patients with, you know, depression, anxiety, including gender dysphoric, you know, gender dysphoric patients. Um, uh-huh. What, what were those presentations like prior to this whole training and you getting on the, uh, uh, on the, on the wrong side of the clinic? Yeah. Um, I, nothing really jumps out at me because I feel like I saw so many people and I just treated them the way I would treat anybody coming in with like depression, anxiety. Like, let's just talk about the things going on in your life. You know, like I didn't feel like I had to rush to diagnose them with anything or rush to like, uh, send them to a gender care clinic. Like that was not, there was not this pressure on that. It was just, let's talk about the things that are causing you distress and where you can find um, just fullness of life. And how can I help guide you um, in this process of just figuring out who you are and what you want out of life. So yeah, it just, I, I felt like I could just do therapy with them without potentially doing something wrong according to my employer so your employer was was saying it sounds like the employer was saying two things one is that you're not allowed to explore those things more deeply with the client and b you're not allowed to say no to writing a letter for the hormone start is am i reading that correctly that yeah yeah so when i aired my concerns about that the speaker at the um training said, you know, that she wanted to make it very clear that this was best practice and multi-care would tolerate nothing less, that um, people know who they are, that we don't ask questions about their gender identity or any of the factors that might be um, influencing that, and that if somebody wants to start um, testosterone or anything else that we sign off on that, otherwise we are not providing best care and we are not keeping kids from killing themselves and we are um, harming them essentially. One of the things that I've 
noticed in terms of a shift in care over the years, because there used to be a lot more mental health oversight in gender medicine like 20 years ago. And, and it seems like in, in particular, I mean, there are a lot of different clinicians being elbowed out of the care, but mental health clinicians in particular are being completely eliminated from the care as if it's somehow irrelevant and yeah. and a barrier to care. And it, I think mental health clinicians are the ones that are catching these things, right? That it's not, it goes in the, in it defies everything that we learn as mental health clinicians about what good care is. And we're, we're being told to, to just sort of put all of our clinical knowledge in the wastebasket at this point, right? And when we feel th these things, when we feel a client expressing distress or. Yeah, you know, it's really, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. No, it just, I was just going to ask, like, how does that, how does that feel for you to like, to feel as though you have concerns? And when we, when, you know, I, I know for myself, when I meet with people, you develop instincts for clients, you develop sort of a spidey sense for, for things that might be going on for a client. And it, it, I can only imagine what it must've felt like for you to f feel that, that spidey sense, right? That there's something deeper going on here and being told that you have to just shut off that, that instinct as a clinician. Well, how did that feel for you? Yeah, it was, I, uh, it, I can't even explain the like process of trying to figure out, am I crazy? Like, People are saying that I'm transphobic. I like, I just don't even know how to like process the fact that, cause I feel like my colleagues, they genuinely want to do good work and they still turned on me. They still acted like I was the problem that my concerns weren't valid. So um, after the training, I only had four people, like four people reach out to me and be like, you know, I, I'm so glad you said something. I understand and um, I was quickly alienated from everybody else that I work with. So, yes, I think it's um, I think that we therapists are the ones that are like, wait, why are why is my role here just to sign off on a letter for them to start whatever hormone therapy or surgery or whatever? Why is that my only role? Like that doesn't see, sit well with me. Um, but I think a lot of clinicians have been sort of indoctrinated with the mindset that like, if you don't do this, then you're not being a good clinician. And I think that they've bought into that, that the best thing they can do is allow a child to be exactly who they think they are at 13. Well, this is how people are able to say, yes, we follow the WPATH standards of care because we did send the client to a mental health clinician who signed a letter. But it, sure. it, it's, it's such a meaningless letter right if like what it's, is the point of having meant any mental health input or oversight if you're not actually allowed to use your best clinical judgment sure and when i said i don't feel comfortable writing it they just gave the client to another clinician who would like it doesn't it is just a hoop to jump through that means nothing you know um and the oh, i lost my train of thought um which I really don't think those what the standards of care are advocating for, right? When they say these kids should be assessed, they should, you know, we yes. should. And they say, you know, especially with things like autism, then bring in autism specialists, right? And and really explore these things with the client. That's that is what they're endorsing for children and youth in those chapters. And it is you're right, it's 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 a lot of places are just turning that into just a a kind of a meaningless checkbox and not really following the standards at all. But they get to say that they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they have people sign these letters. Sure. 
And even the gender care clinic notes, I feel like when I was concerned that they weren't being thorough in their um, in their assessment of these kids, for instance, my 13-year-old who really couldn't even have a conversation, for them to be able to verbalize the things that the gender care clinic notes said that they were verbalizing, I just didn't feel like that. I didn't know how that was possible. So when I asked that question, they said, I want you to rest assured that they know what they're doing. Like they just silenced every concern that I had. Um, and another thought that like just really like upsets me is, so absolutely I want to keep kids safe. I want them to feel um, like I have no desire to do something for a child that's going to end them up in the hospital with a suicide attempt or something like I want to keep kids safe, but my loyalty <clears throat> isn't just to the 13 year old them. Like my loyalty is also to the them at 20, you know, and if they <clears throat> decide when they're 18 that, yeah, absolutely. I want to be a different gender. Like, okay. You've thought about that for a long time. And that is still something that you feel like is true for you. And I, um, that that's a different conversation, but what if I sign off on something for a child and, um, 10 years down the road, they think like, oh my gosh, I, this isn't true for me. And then they think back to like me writing a letter to support them starting a testosterone or whatever. And they think, why didn't my therapist say anything? Why did they just smile at me and nod at me and act like I knew what I was talking about at 13 or 16? Like, I just, how is that good care? I don't understand how that's good care. I don't want somebody to look back and think, man, I went to a therapist and they didn't do anything for me. When you presented Which a lot of the detransitioners are saying, right, is they've lost trust for the therapist and the doctors. Sure. Yeah, I think people are so worried about not. I don't know about. Just. It's like this woke mentality, right? Like, absolutely. If somebody like this is not an issue for me about whether or not people are allowed to be transgender. Absolutely. That is fine. But let's wait until you're not 13 when everything is confusing, you know? And I think people are so concerned about um, it's almost like becoming this political thing that has nothing to do with the, the client sitting in front of you at all, you know? What was your sense from your colleagues who were the ones who were, um, you know, blowing up the chat box, you know, admonishing you for having concerns or for vocalizing your concerns? Because I... I, I can't imagine it's anything other than a, like a self-defense response on their part. Like, because, I mean, how do they not have similar concerns? Right. But they like, th that's what I keep thinking is like, uh, or also your boss, right. When you, when you presented um, those findings to her, uh, whatever it was that you wanted her to read to better understand your concerns. She said she didn't have time. Do you actually believe that she just was, you know, so harried and didn't have time to read it or was it a self-protective? Like, I can't, I can't absorb information that's going to give me, you know, that kind of cognitive dissonance about what we're doing here. Yeah. I think that probably is more like it. I think that <clears throat> if people listen to me, then they have to, um, they have to consider the possibility that they have hurt kids, you know, or they have not always acted in their best interest. Um, and I think also you have to ask yourself if, if they were to listen to me, then that there's another level of this. Like, why is my, why are the higher ups at multi-care mandating this thing that other people have concerns about? And then how do you stay at an organization that doesn't listen when you say, 
I don't know if this is best practice. So yeah, I think it would, I think it was scary for people to think that I had any, that I knew what I was talking about in any small sense. Yeah. And then even outside of the professional context, it's the, the, the cultural context. It's like having those concerns means you're far right. Right. And so yeah. there's like the whole, a whole identity crisis involved um, in really seeing the harm that's being done, I think. Yeah. And that's not what it is for me at all. Like, I just want to make sure that the kids that are in my care that I'm doing what's best for them. And I know everyone has a different idea of what that looks like, but um, my understanding is that 85% of transgender youth um, who are allowed to progress through puberty normally outgrow that they end up being gay or something else. Like they're, if we just let them figure out who they are, then when they're 18, they might be like, I mean, I just feel like let's let kids be kids, you know, without making any permanent decisions when they're still learning. It's definitely a red, red flag for me um, to like, I've worked in a number of different areas of clinical practice. And so you kind of get used to the conventions of how different clinical things are discussed amongst clinicians. And yeah, there, there at times there are disagreements and there are people that have strong personalities and strong opinions, but it's still considered acceptable I would say on, across the board that you discuss research, you debate how you're interpreting that research. And that's that's how we develop good practice, right, is, is through really working out those questions and backing up what we're saying with evidence. But it's it's quite different in this type of care, as, as you experience, that as soon as you ask a question that is a sound clinical question, it's like, yes, Europe is doing systematic reviews and is really re revamping how they do this care so that seems to me a very reasonable question is okay when they're doing that why are we so confident with this like that even if they disagreed with you it's a it's a reasonable question so it is a red flag that it's not just you but this seems to be a, a trend in this whole movement is any question or any pushback they become very hostile absolutely yeah, and at no point did anyone ever say, you know what? Thank you for um thank you for your questions. Let me know what article or what you were reading that um that made you draw that conclusion so that I can look that over and tell you why you're wrong. They never asked for any like anything. They just were so quick to dismiss everything I was saying and call me transphobic and other things that just like broke my heart. Cuz I I experienced something quite similar when I had, you know, questions and concerns and different differences of opinion is that is automatically the go-to is you're just bigoted and transphobic mm -hmm. and spreading propaganda like there's no conversation like if I was nope. wrong then explain how why I was wrong right like explain to me exactly. why thinking has changed so much over the last several decades on this and and if you're so confident that what you're doing is right you should be able to explain it and bring people along you know, into your thinking and not just bully them I feel like once you are so defensive and so angry that you can't have a conversation anymore, something else is going on, you know? Right. Yeah. It's time to take pause and, and, and reflect why you can't address yeah, what the person mm -hmm. is saying without resorting to um, yeah, verbal abuse and mind reading accusations, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just sound relational awareness, right? I mean, if you were in a one-to-one -one relationship with somebody that every time you disagreed or asked a question, they blew up at you and called you names, we would consider that an abusive relationship. Absolutely. 
and yeah, yet that's happening professionally with care of professionally on mm-hmm. mass. Yep, absolutely. I did say that at one point that I felt like I was almost in an abusive relationship with my employer because every time I tried to say something, they made me feel crazy. They made me feel like I hated transgender people. Like it was just, oh, it was just so awful. So how's it been since the uh, since the release of the of the of the the uh, the article and 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 you're coming forward? Yeah. So. Um, I had somebody recently ask me how I'm handling all the negative things being said about me. I'm not looking at anything. I don't okay. care to know what people have to say about me. Um, but two days ago, I ended up losing my new job. So I feel like there's definitely been fallout. You know, um, they didn't give that as the reason that I lost my job. Um, they just said I wasn't the right fit for the role. But it's definitely turned my life upside down. There's been people who have... Um, expressed support. And then I got, you know, uninvited to a coworker's kid's birthday party. Like it's just been, it's just been a lot, you know, has anyone in your, in your life expressed support for you? Absolutely. The people, um, who I am closest to, even if they don't necessarily a hundred percent say like, yeah, I totally agree with you. They say, I am so proud of you for standing up for what you feel is right. You know? It takes courage to have a voice when you know that people are going to tear you apart for it. I'm sorry for the the fallout that you've received. It's okay. It's, <laughs> I I feel like um I told somebody yesterday, you know, I'm scared and I'm sad and I'm angry, but I'm not sorry. Like, I'm not sorry for having a voice. I feel like I owe it to the kids that I work with and their parents. I would be furious if I thought I was taking my gender dysphoric child to a therapist to get help. And they were just rubber stamping anything that the kids said and, you know, fast tracking them to medicalization. You know, I've worked in a number of different programs. I'll just give you an anecdote from uh, the eating disorders program where I used to work because we, in our services, we provided very structured, a very structured environment on the inpatient unit in order to try to manage the behaviors and provide therapeutic support for them. And Sometimes our clients, because we were a provincial program, so sometimes our clients would go to hospitals in their local area rather than travel several hours to come to our department, which is what they're supposed to do. You go to your local hospital first. And we would have hospitals say, call, give us a call and say, hey, I've got the, one of your, your patients here. We are going to admit them. We're going to, you know, refeed them, get them to gain some weight can you send us a care plan? And we would send a care plan that was based on our own care plan that was very highly structured. And sometimes the clinicians would say, well, we don't want to do that. That seems that seems mean, that seems punitive, right? To to not allow them to go out for, for passes in which they'll run around the block three times to try to lose weight. Like the, there's reasons why we had these protocols in place. So some of them would push back saying, well, no, I think having that kind of limits and structure is, isn't, isn't appropriate. And then they would inevitably give us a call again a month later saying, okay, what do we do? Our client hasn't gained any weight. They're, we let them out on passes and they're running around to lose weight. And what do we do? And I said, well, you need to follow the care plan. But what a lot of the patients would say in those hospitals is send me to St. Paul's. You guys don't know what you're doing. Because wow. on, on one hand, I mean, yes, when we put limits on them, they would sometimes get angry and try to push against those limits. 
But I would say the vast majority of times people know that they're safe within those limits. Mm -hmm. And when you're a clinician who isn't willing to provide any limits for someone who can't, who doesn't have the internal structure to do that for themselves, they don't feel safe. Yeah, absolutely. They say that with parenting too, right? Like kids feel safe when there's boundaries, when there's rules, when they know sort of like they felt feel like, okay, the adults around me know what they're doing. I am okay. You know, versus being like, I don't know, we can just kind of do whatever you want. So in the case of your client that, you know, identified as a, as a wounded dog, to me, that's a signal they're trying to express something to you. Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. to feel like all of these adults are saying, yep, okay, you're a wounded dog. Let's affirm that. And let's, let's start you on hormones because you identify that way. Isn't, I wonder how safe that kid really feels in that process. Sure. Sure. I have that same concern, you know? Um, And what if, what if there was a part of them that was like, you know, when I said that I identify as male, that didn't get the reaction I wanted. So now I'm going to say that I identify as wounded male dog as like a cry for help, but that's not, no one seems to care about that either. You know, no one's really listening to that cry for help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So it sounds like a young person that's really struggling to express the the level of distress and pain that they're yeah. in. They, they don't have, they can't find the words for it. Yeah. And they're, they're channeling it through things like identify as a wounded dog and no one's really hearing that, it sounds like. Yeah. I. That's probably how the kid would feel too, you know? Well, it's obviously you care a lot about your clients. I do. I care yeah. very much. And that's, again, why it broke my heart that my, um, my colleagues just kind of turned on me, you know? I care so much. How large is the clinic, would you say? Like how many colleagues? Were there? You said oh, there was yeah. many people in that in that training anyway. Yeah, multi-care is huge. I don't even know how many clinicians there were. A hundred and <clears throat> there were a hundred and twenty-two in that meeting, but my understanding is that that wasn't the only meeting that they had. You know, so it's yeah, it's a it's a huge population of clinicians, and off many of our client, many of the youth in Washington do go to multi-care. So I have huge concerns about what we're doing with the kids in the society. Yeah, it was very, very little overstate or oversight and well in any of this, but especially in our state. Um I also yeah. don't understand why, like even if someone was started on hormones, why does the therapy have to stop at that point? Like why like why couldn't you so if they decided that hormones hormones were the way to go and they started them on hormones why couldn't you have continued to still explore those things with the client i i find that so puzzling like why therapy has to stop and as soon as the hormones start sure or or not necessarily even stop if it never began but like um where you can't you have to tiptoe around those questions you know like whether or not they end up being starting some sort of hormone replacement therapy, you know, like previously or after they start it, like you can't ask anything. You can't ask anything about, okay, so where is this coming from or anything about their past that you, that they might interpret you trying to imply that their gender identity isn't a hundred percent valid or whatever. Cause I, I saw clients too in practice that had, had, you know, sexual abuse backgrounds, and I w- absolutely would ask them about it, and I would I would frame that in a way that that hopefully felt safe to them, and saying, you know, 
this is something that I think is important to ask about. And they were always understanding of that. It's like, well, of course you need to ask about that. And and the point wasn't to try to trick them, you no. know, into saying something wrong. The point is I just want to make, I wanted to understand their thought process and to, to what degree had they already considered how was my gender identity related or not related to what happened to me. And I just wanted to see some, evidence that they had thought that through in some sort of kind of logical way and in some cases I felt like they hadn't explored that very adequately in other cases I felt like they had and they were able to say yes I thought about it and this is my thought process and this I landed on you know this decision and I don't think it's related to this abuse because x y and z well at least they've really demonstrated they've thought about it right they've pieced all that together and they've thought it all through yeah. So, I mean, I could definitely say, hey, tell me about your sexual abuse history and let's process some of that trauma. I couldn't say, um, do you feel like that has any impact on your gender identity presently? Like I couldn't work through that with them in any, any, I couldn't be like, do you think there's anything about that that has led you to where you're at today? Or do you feel like, no, that's, I've all, I felt this like, this is, um, that is not part of the story or not part of the, um, what led me to this place in my life, you know? Um, and the person who did the training said that there is no reason. There's no reason that somebody's gender identity would be mixed up in anything else. So like if they did have a traumatic background, like that's irrelevant. Like you don't, you don't ask those questions because they know who they are. Yeah. I found it quite remarkable. They, they literally said that, um, nothing, there's nothing that causes gender distress other than gender or something yeah. along the, those lines. Right? Yeah. Yes. What's gender? It's, it's just gender. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so confusing. I don't, yeah. It breaks my heart. And yeah, we do have detransitioners coming forward saying, well, it was because of my sexual abuse history. It was because of my internalized homophobia. Like there's there's people saying that these things did contribute to their decision to transition and sure. how they were, their own self-perception. So yeah, we do and have then, evidence. Absolutely. And then they have every right to look back and feel like the medical system failed them for not asking those questions. So where where do you go from here? <laughs> What's next for you? That is a very good question. Um, I want to continue to have a voice where I'm able to because I have sacrificed so much time and tears and emotion. I want so desperately to see something change for these kids, you know, um, and maybe I'll start doing private practice or something because I know that there's a great need for um for people in this community, you know, to have a therapist who's going to listen with the, listen to them and sit with them and help them feel safe and not judged and not rushed to medicalize them. I know that people feel safe with me because they've tried to follow me from multi-care to the place that I was at recently, you know, and that just is so reassuring to me. That's I'm good. doing good work with these people, even if my colleagues would say otherwise. Sounds like it. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to us and it sounds like a very stressful time for you but i appreciate your time yeah. just talk telling us the story yeah of course thank you for thank you for talking with me and yeah it's stressful but i have hope i have hope that something will eventually shift or that in some small way that i'm not necessarily seeing right now that i'm helping tip the needle in the right direction you know you definitely are helping. definitely thank you. thank you thanks for joining us for this episode of the transparency podcast 
If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support. <laughs>